Hi, my name's Jason. I'm the senior pastor at Chilton Church. We hope all our messages will help you connect more fully with God's love, grow as his follower, and share his hope with those around you. Thanks so much for joining us. Really glad to be with you this morning and to be kicking off a new section. Um, We've been going through the book of Mark, breaking it up into sections and series as we've gone, and really unpacking what what Mark's been trying to show us. And and we're starting a new section in chapter 4, looking at parables, the keys to life. And and before I go into that, I wonder if you've ever thought about the difference between knowledge and and understanding, and it's, it's maybe not a very strict definition of these two words that makes them distinct, but it's something I've always done when I've spoken about understanding the Bible. And so I don't know if you've thought about the distinction between knowledge and understanding. The illustration that I like to use is kind of like if I had to ask you maybe to give me all of the parts that are necessary to put together a car. So if I give you a list of paper, and, and a lot of you might get fairly far, you might, some of you might only get as far as four wheels and car, Um, But some of us might know a bit more than that. You might know we need the engine and bits. I'm probably one of those people who can't go much further than that. But if I had to ask you, you might be able to write down quite a few things. The same for maybe a cake. If I had to say, what sort of ingredients would you need to, to bake a cake? You might be able to write out quite accurately a list of ingredients or a list of parts needed to put those two things together. And, and that would be the knowledge. But understanding is knowing how to then put those bits together in a way so that the car goes in a way so that the cake tastes good um, and tastes great. So knowledge is having ingredients. It's knowing what ingredients you need. It's knowing what parts you need. But understanding is being able to put them together or at least knowing how they fit together. And the reason I wanted to, to draw our attention to this is because it's so critical when we read the Bible in our private times of study or when we're listening to a message, when we come to any passage, for us to know the difference between knowledge and understanding when it comes to the Bible. Biblical knowledge is a great thing, and I think there's a lot of people who have biblical knowledge. They can list a lot of the stories that they've heard in Sunday school, that they've heard at church, that they've read in their own time. They can tell you about Abraham and about Moses. They can tell you some of the stories about Jesus. They can list all of the things that maybe happen. But understanding is knowing how all those stories fit together. Understanding is knowing how the the links of the chain come together because the Bible is not a string of pearls. It's not a string of pearls and we take one pearl of wisdom and we take that and we use that one for the day. It's actually a link. It's a chain. Everything comes together. One big overarching story about God saving humanity through Jesus Christ and all of the stories, every little bit comes together and that is what we call biblical understanding. And I think it's so important. I think it's important when we come to Mark. And so I always take this approach, which I call zoom in, zoom out. I'm, I'm not an artist. I, I'm a very bad artist if I had to try to be one. I, I can scribble little stick men at best. But, but my beautiful wife is an artist and she draws wonderful paintings. And one of the things I know about art is that you need to have the big picture in mind and you need to get the finer details right. And when you get the finer details right, the big picture looks better and makes sense. But if you just take big strokes, you might make something called contemporary modern art, but it won't really look like a picture of much. And so when we read the Bible, I always teach people we need to zoom in and we need to zoom out. We need to look at that word that catches our attention. Look at the the conjunctions. Everyone's like, oh, I'm in an English lesson. Look at the the clauses and how they link together and what are they actually saying. 
But then zoom out and see the bigger picture. And how does that story fit in with this story? How does what Mark's saying fit in with the Bible? And I don't have enough time to go through all of the links. But as we start the section, I think it's so important to understand what's going on. And I've said this before, and I will probably say it for a very long time as we're going through the book of Mark. A gospel is not just a chronological historical recording. Mark has an intention, a pastoral theological goal. And he's taken these pieces of the stories, these true stories that have actually happened, and he's patched them together. He's painted them in a particular way because he wants to highlight something. He wants to show us something. He wants us to see what's happening. He's got a theological motivation because he's trying to show us who Jesus is. And so we have this awesome section of parables in chapter 4, and there's four of them. And it starts with the setting of Jesus being in a boat at the sea, and he's teaching people. Imagine doing church right on the beach. That would be lovely. And it ends at the sea because he's still giving the stories. And I actually thought, wow, if I'd looked at this earlier, I might have suggested stories at the seaside as a great title for the series. But that's what's happening. Jesus is telling stories at the seaside. He's telling stories. And he tells four parables that are in two pairs. And these parables have, have two functions. They, they explain what's going, what's just been happening. It's almost like Jesus' commentary on, on all the people, as we've looked over the last few weeks, who've responded to him either by rejecting him or calling him crazy, or accusing him, or responding to him positively. And these parables, Jesus in these parables is almost commentating on that. But at the same time, he's declaring some truth about the kingdom. And so the first parable we have to start with, to start our series, is the parable of the sower. One you might, you might know quite well. It's the first and it's the longest. It's quite substantially longer than the rest of the parables. And I think we'll see why as we go through, because this parable is so pivotal to understanding what's going on. But before we jump into the parable, I need to give us four very simple guidelines to interpreting parables. It's something that was taught to me when I was a teenager. I've carried it with me. It's, it's a really simple thing, and it helps us to know what not to do when we approach a parable and what to do, how to understand it. And so very simply, the in, how to interpret parables, I'll give you these four. We won't spend long on them, but it's just to have this in the back of our mind because it's so important so that we don't get it wrong. With parables, with stories that Jesus tells us, it's important not to overemphasize every little detail. Sometimes we can get really caught away and maybe there's a, a secret hidden message somewhere in this tiny little detail about this thing that's happening. But Jesus is trying to create a story that conveys one main point, which is our second guideline. And so we don't overemphasize every little detail other than the key details that are there. Some are important, some are not. But it, what is clear is that every parable has one main point, and our goal is to try and uncover that point. The third thing is, is quite simple context. Our favorite thing when reading the Bible shapes our interpretation, right? Who's Jesus talking to? What is he responding to? And, and does Jesus himself, like in this instant for this parable, does he give us the interpretation? Which is quite easy, because when Jesus gives us the interpretation, we know it's right, we know we don't have to dig too much deeper, but it's always helpful when he does, and then we start to look at that. And are there other parables? Jesus will often use three or four parables to explain several different aspects about one thing, and he's very, very good at doing that. And lastly, and this is very important for us, we don't use parables as the basis or the foundation for doctrine, for key truths about the Christian faith. We don't build an understanding about God and about about the, the, the main core message of the gospel based on a parable because parables are stories with a specific purpose. And so we don't use those to explain our theology. 
But with this in mind, let's jump into the parable. All of that build up. I'm sure that was very exciting. But let's jump into the parable. Let's read what happens and then draw out some application for us this morning. I trust it will be encouraging to us. Mark 4, verses 1 to 20, and we'll read through together. We'll read through the parable, take a pause, and then read through Jesus' explanation. Verse 1, and he began to teach beside the sea, and a very large crowd gathered about him, so that he got into a boat and sat in it on the sea, and the whole crowd beside the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and in his teachings he said to them, listen. And then he goes on to tell the parable. Just interesting to see the setting here. I think it's quite a a beautiful setting. There's such a massive crowd. So Jesus hops into a boat and starts to teach these people from the boat. And he starts to teach them in parables. And quite interesting, he starts with this exclamation, listen, listen, what I'm about to tell you matters. And so he starts the parable. Behold, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path and the birds came and they devoured it. Other seed fell along the rocky ground, where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up, since it had no depth of soil. And when the sun rose, it was scorched, and since it had no root, it withered away. Carries on in verse 7. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no grain. And other seeds fell into good soil and produced grain growing up and increasing their yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And Jesus said, he who has ears, let him hear. And we're going to go into Jesus' explanation about this parable. He does interpret it for us. But before we move on, I want us to just hear that last phrase. And Jesus often throws this in. In fact, in the next parable, he links the two together by using this exact same phrase, one that he's drawn from the Old Testament. He says to us, he who has ears, let him hear. And this is a key theme actually that jumps out in this parable, this idea of hearing, this, this idea of responding to the truth. It's, it's saying if you've physically heard what's been said, then you are responsible for hearing in the sense of acting upon it. If you have heard with your ears, then you must truly hear by responding to what, what you have heard. And this theme is so important to how Jesus explains the parable. But before we go on to the actual explanation of the parable, I would like to talk about sandwiches. Might seem a bit odd. I was hoping that this picture wouldn't make everyone hungry and sort of then they start daydreaming about lunch if you're not already doing that and start thinking, hmm, sandwich. See, there's a, there's a technical term that we would use to describe this. It's called an inclusio, a sandwich or an inclusio. A sandwich in the Bible is where the writer uses two pieces of repetition or two ideas to frame a middle section. That makes sense. So you write with a sandwich, you've got two slices of bread and you've got the filling. Now, this might seem so strange to you. And I remember doing this with my young adult Bible study in Cape Town. And all they remembered from a year of teaching with them was sandwiches, 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 because I kept reminding them about sandwiches. But it's so important to know some of the tools that these writers who God has inspired to write his word have used. 
And when you can spot them, it actually brings things alive. I, I actually thought I might just throw this out there. One of my favorite passages to teach on this, um, to teach that has one of these is the Beatitudes. And so I'll throw that out there. Feel free to come to me next week or the week after and say, Ryan, I read the Beatitudes. This is how I saw the sandwich. And if you get it right, I'll get you a chocolate or we can just high five and just celebrate about sandwiches. But it's so cool because the writer's doing it with a reason, right? He's, he's created the layers with the bread because he wants to pinpoint this, this middle bit to show you that the way that the, the sandwich fits together, okay, we, we don't want to be hipsters with the Bible. We don't want to have a deconstructed sandwich. You know, eat the bread separately, then eat the meat separately, then eat the next piece of bread, right? You eat it together. And so the way to understand the sandwich, to eat it, to understand this passage, because the reason I'm bringing this up is because quite clearly this passage is a sandwich. It is technically, if you, if you don't quite like me throwing the word sandwich around so often, you can use the technical term inclusio, right? If you're academic in nature. But this text has a core central being. And, what, and it's quite clear. Jesus tells the parable. Jesus explains the parable. But then he has this little moment in the middle where we actually get an insight into the purpose of parables. Where he actually speaks about parables in general. And this insight informs our understanding, not only of this parable, which it clearly will, but of all the parables to follow. And so with that, I'm sure, hunger-inducing divergence into sandwiches, let's, let's read on and look at what the, what the filling is. Verse 10, and when he was alone, those around him with the twelve asked him about the parables. And he said to them, to you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God, but for those outside, everything is in parables, so that they may indeed see but not perceive, and may indeed hear but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. I realized as I was preparing this, these are some difficult verses to wrap our heads around. It, it, it doesn't always fit with our understanding of how Jesus' motivation and character would be. And We'd need a whole sermon, potentially, on these verses alone to understand what are the purpose of parables. Why did Jesus speak so cryptically sometimes? It was like when we saw how he would keep his, his identity a secret for his own purposes. And we unpacked a bit of that. But these verses really do make it difficult for us to wrap our heads. Why would Jesus use parables to keep things from those outside of his followers? But there are two things that I do want to highlight, and it might not explain everything for us. We might still have questions, and we can shelve those and deal with them. But I think what we need to realize is parables have a purpose, and it's twofold. They reveal aspects of the kingdom of God, right? And if we are Christians, the blessing is this. The secret of the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom of God has been revealed to us. It has been given. It is a grace. We have ears to hear and we know the kingdom of God and we can enjoy it. We can see and perceive. We can hear and understand. It is revelation for his followers. But what's so curious and what's so difficult is parables are actually also a form of judgment on those outside who have hardened their hearts to who Jesus is. It is a form of judgment to those who have already hardened their hearts to him. He then continues the hardening by concealing the truth from those who have rejected him. And as Jesus now goes on to explain this parable of the sower, we start to see how this actually plays out. How does this play out? How do people with hard hearts receive the word? And how do people with soft hearts receive the word. And so Jesus looks at the sower and he explains the four soils and we'll see that there are three that don't receive it as they should. 
but there is one way to receive the word as we ought to. He said to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you not, how then will you understand all the parables? See, this parable is so much longer and it has this big sandwich and it's got this big start to it and structure because it's so important because it deals with how we receive the word. The sower sows the word. And so the question is, how do we hear it? How do we hear it when we're singing the truths about God? How do we hear it when someone preaches from a front, really awkward to say when you're the person doing that? But how do we hear the word when it's declared to us, either in song or in preaching or on a a show or just as you're reading your Bible, when truth and revelation from God comes to our ears, how do we receive it? How do we receive it? Let's have a look at what Jesus says as he explains the parable. And what you'll notice is that there's almost a progression in terms of how deep the seed goes and yet still doesn't bear fruit unless it's the last soil. Let's read together. Verse 15. And these are the ones along the path. Right, so the sower sows the seed and the seed that lands along the path where the word is sown. These are the ones along the path where the word is sown. When they hear... Satan immediately comes and takes away the word that is sown in them. And these are the ones sown on rocky ground. The ones who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy. And they have no root in themselves, but endure for a while. Then, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Verse 18. And others are the ones sown among the thorns. They are those who hear the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful. But those that were sown on the good soil are the ones who hear the word and accept it and bear fruit thirtyfold and sixtyfold and a hundredfold. And so I want to go through these these four soils and just draw out what does this what does this mean how does how do we understand these these ways of hearing and the first one is the path and i call it the path of indifference right it's people who hear but they don't receive if you think of a path a path is not ready for seed it's not been been broken up it's not been prepared it's just hard right this is a classic hard-hearted apathetic indifference It's hard. It's ward. The seed cannot get into the ground. And then the seed is stolen because that's what the enemy does. People with hard hearts, when the revelation, the word of God is sown, it falls along. It can't get absorbed into the soil. There's not a reception of the word. And so the enemy comes in and he steals it because that's what he does. Made me think of the pigeons in UCT, University of Cape Town. I didn't study there, but I did visit occasionally, and I heard these stories many times of people who said there are certain areas in the university where you don't go because the pigeons are violently keen on your food. Right? They will get your food, and if you don't eat it first, they will get it. They swoop down and they get it. Made me think of that movie with the seagulls that shout, "Mine, mine, 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 mine!" Right? They're after your food, and and the enemy is like that. He is after us. He doesn't want us to grow because when when the seed takes root in our hearts, it bears fruit. And he doesn't want that. And so if our hearts are hard, that we won't even accept it, right? He's going to be like one of those terrible pigeons and just take it. 
one of those seagulls and just take it. Simply because there is a hardness and an indifference, an apatheticness about us that won't allow the word to sink in. We won't even accept it. It's like hearing songs and sermons and not even receiving any of the truth. No concern. It doesn't even affect people who are on this path of indifference, who are like this path of indifference, are not affected by truth that they hear. I, I simply had to include this quote by a, a, a pastor um, who lived a while ago, J.C. Rowell, very famous pastor. And it's very, it's got a very stern warning, but I think it's so important that we hear these hard words because they're the ones we sometimes need. He says, regarding the people who are like this path, he says, there are myriads of professing Christians in this state. There is hardly a church or a chapel where scores of them are not to be found. Sunday after Sunday, they allow the devil to catch away the good seed that is sown on the surface of their hearts. Week after week, they live on without faith or fear or knowledge or grace, feeling nothing, caring nothing, taking no more interest in religion than if Christ had never died on the cross at all. And in this state, they often die and are buried and are lost forever in judgment. This is a mournful picture, but it is true. It is so important that if God has given us grace to recognize that's the state of our soul, that we respond to him and say, God, I want to be good soil. I don't want to be indifferent. I don't want to be unmoved or apathetic. I want to receive the seed. The next soil that gets sown is the, the rocky ground, and I call this the rocky ground of persecution. And these go one further. They, they hear it. And it says that they receive it immediately. They even receive it joyfully. They hear the revelation, the spoken word of God, and they endure for a while until there is a cost. Right? In, in the passage, Jesus says, until persecution or tribulation rises on account of the word. Right? So they'll take it as long as it benefits them, just not so long as it costs something. Right? It's because the growth above the ground exceeds the growth below. Do you see that? It says that they sowed on rocky ground and there's no soil underneath. And so the roots can't go deep. And so when the wind of hardship comes or a tornado of persecution comes or any pushback or opposition comes, there is no root. There's no depth. And they topple. They fall. They're eager for the blessing, eager for the comfort, eager for the convenience. But no, they don't want the cost or the persecution. As soon as there's pushback, they bail. Their God is comfort and convenience. D.A. Carson, another powerful theologian and pastor, someone I really admire, he said that some Christians want enough of Jesus to be identified with him, but not enough to be seriously inconvenienced. Just enough to be identified, right? I just want to wear the label Christian, but I don't want this religion to actually inconvenience my life or change me. C.S. Lewis famously said, if you want a religion that makes you comfortable and cushy, don't accept Christianity. It's not what it's for. It's not what it's about. It calls for denial. It calls for sacrifice. It calls for risk. It calls for saying, God, I'm here for you. I am here for you. I'm going to push forward. It has deep roots. If we aren't willing to be inconvenienced for our faith with regards to our time or our money or our status, etc., then we certainly won't be willing to suffer for it. So many of us read a book um, by a fiction author, and one of the things he said, he said, courage is not being willing to die for something, but to actually truly live for it. 
I thought, wow, that's actually quite profound. I don't know if it's 100% true, but there's something about truly living out the Christian life where the, the word has actually taken root in your heart and actually willing to take on the costs of living out a Christian faith. We are told by Jesus to expect pushback to our faith. But if we have those deep roots, if we're not rocky ground, we will have the strength to stand against it. The third one, and a really challenging one, is the thorns of wealth and want. These are people, again, who hear, and unlike the path, but similar to the rocky ground, they do receive it, they take it in, and they actually go on for a while. But when it comes to the point of bearing fruit, the scripture says they do not bear any. It proves unfruitful. It says that the word has been choked out by three things, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, and the desires for other things. The presence of these things will severely throttle our fruitfulness in the kingdom. And it's so careful. I know how careful we have to be with this because it's quite clear in the scriptures that simply having wealth is not a sin. That's very clear. But we cannot serve two masters. We cannot have our complete goal in life to be, to have enough, right? To have enough that we're safe. To have enough that we feel comfortable. To have enough that we feel secure. To have enough, to have enough as opposed to give to God. Give to God. It just changes if, 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 if wealth is our desire and prosperity is our aim and comfort is our God, it will change our entire direction of life. The paths are opposite in terms of seeking after Jesus, walking in the kingdom. A lecturer of mine used to say something really profound. He used to say, if you're only ever as secure and comfortable as your bank account, then you don't really trust in God. It says, if you can only ever be at peace in your heart when the bank account is full, then you don't really trust God. I wrestle with this one because quite frankly, I grew up with plenty. I grew up spoiled. Bless my parents, I love them. But it's actually created in me deeper issues of being able to trust God and know what that actually means when there's lack being able to give generously and know what actually is required. Being able to have a heart that can break away from material want and desire. Falling into the trap of pursuing riches robs us from pursuing the riches of knowing and serving Jesus. The desire for these other things draws us away from a deepening desire for God. There's a, a little, little story in 2 Timothy. You might not always notice it. It's right at the end where Paul says, pray for me for Demas, one of his helpers in ministry. He says, pray for me for Demas has deserted me because he loved the world. It's a very interesting balance that we need to get right. And if we want to bear fruit in the kingdom, we need to be aware that we are not planted as in thorns that will choke out the word, the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desire for things. Prosperity is the devil's main strategy to create passive Christians. It's his main strategy. It's what he promised Jesus. It's what he promised Jesus to worship him. Worship me and I will give you all things. 
It's the main strategy of the enemy to create passive Christians, prosperity. Israel never did well with blessing. If you read the story of God's people, they never did well with blessing. It was always when they had that they fell. These are difficult warnings, but they're necessary if we really want to follow God. And so we get to the good one. We get to the one we all want to be, right? This is what we want. We want to be good soil. We don't want to be the, the path of indifference. We don't want to be the rocky ground that, that falls in persecution without any root. We don't want to be with thorns that, that desire wealth and want more than they desire God. We want to be good soil that bears fruit. This is quite simply people who hear the word and they accept it. They don't just receive it. They accept it. It becomes part of their heart and it bears fruit. You want to know if you are good soil, look for fruit. Look for fruit. There is always visible fruit in the life of people who receive the word of God truly. It's quite simple. If the soil is healthy and a seed is planted and watered, it will grow and it will bear fruit. It will bear fruits of repentance and faith and holiness. And so quite simply, we need to ask the question, what kind of soil are we? What kind of soil is our heart? What kind of soil is there? Is there fruit in our lives? And if there's not fruit, is it because we're indifferent when we hear the word of God and, and apathetic? If there's not fruit in our lives, is it because we lack roots that go deep and really it's just a matter of time until some persecution knocks us over? Or is it because of the thorns of, of want and wealth? What soil are you when you hear the word? How do you hear? How do you hear? Romans 10 verse 17 says, Faith comes through hearing, hearing the message of Christ. We get the word to our ears, but does it sink into our hearts? Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about the church and how to connect with us in person or online wherever you are, please visit our website at www.chiltonchurch.org.uk.